Intérieur by Richard Grayson, read by Madeleine Lambert. What is a dream? He was in the city, but it was his own block, and she was in his house. Outside, she pointed to his car in the driveway. Two other cars had parked too close to the yellow lines on the sidewalk, and it would be difficult for him to remove his car. He was afraid, but he got into the car, and she showed him that he had plenty of room. Suddenly, she began to point out an airplane that was coming in for a landing, and he became annoyed with her for distracting him during such a difficult maneuver. Yet somehow, he managed to get the car out of the driveway, even while watching the airplane land. And then she disappeared. So apparently, he would be able to go home. What is a dream? He was driving and had to urinate. So when the pressure on his bladder became unbearable, he stopped off at a carnival to look for a bathroom. But when he got out of the car, he discovered that it had been a false alarm, merely the pressure of the car's seat belt on his groin. At the carnival, a clown was entertaining scads of small children. The clown kept blowing up a balloon, bigger and bigger. He would say, shall I do more? After each blow. The children were delighted. More, more, they squealed. Eventually, of course, the balloon burst. He had been expecting it, yet the loud noise startled him anyway. On the way out of the carnival, he ran into his uncle, who had gotten so much older. How does it feel to be a man? When he was 10 years old and sitting poolside at a San Juan hotel, he called a woman an adulteress. She was a red-haired secretary from Cleveland, sunning herself in a brown bikini. She told him that one day someone would punch him in the nose. He felt strange when she said that, and he protested that he assumed an adulteress was merely a female adult, just as a poetess was merely a female poet. But he knew it went beyond that. How far, he wasn't sure. He was scared of the pink flamingos which chased him across the hotel grounds, and he was even more terrified by the naked children shouting, Americano, Americano, as his parents threw pennies from the taxi. And in El Moro Castle, he was worried that he might fall through one of the holes in the floor. The guide had said that Ponce de Leon once fell through one of the holes and thus discovered Florida. What is an anxiety attack? One evening while baking carrot cake, he realized that he always cringed inwardly when his mother approached, knowing that there was something he was doing wrong either sitting down incorrectly so that he was damaging the back of the car, or getting powder in the cracks of the tiles of the bathroom floor, or else getting a stain on the carpeting, a stain invisible to everyone but his mother. His mother, as well as his father, by his silent acquiescence, had believed in a sterilized world and an antiseptic, well-thought-out life, and for a long time he believed that it was the only kind of life available to him. Once he found out differently, he was furious for what he had missed. And while it made him doubt his own reality, he learned after a while to appreciate the possibilities. Eventually, he stopped listening to his mother. When she talked about something, he would imagine her an inmate in a mental institution, screaming out insane, irrational things from behind bars. In the long run, it made things easier. Why do people have to die? In the 1950s, there was a television serial he watched when he came home from school for peanut butter and jelly. The show was called 
Love of Life. Every day the program would begin with a deep-voiced announcer announcing, Love of Life, Vanessa Dale's Search for Human Dignity. He wondered if it had become impossible to live with dignity. There were long lines everywhere, at the movies, in banks, at gasoline stations. On the subways, people were cattle, herded from one malfunctioning train to another by transit cowboys disguised as policemen. All over the west side, he was treated like a messenger, and hence as less than human. Behind all those precise lowercase graphics and shag carpeting and Danish modern glass partitions, there was a machine, a machine with people for parts. At five o'clock, the machine became a monster and vomited up the day's food. He was quite nearly a part of that vomit. What is a dream? For years, he was obsessed with vomiting. While nobody he knew thought the process was charming, no one but he seemed to realize the extent of its horror. Every day, he would become nauseated to the point of vomiting. Every day, he would sit and sweat and put things in his mouth and write out secret codes on notebook loose-leaf paper. NNN meant no nausea now. LMBOK stood for let me be okay. DGPNVT was shorthand for Dear God, please no vomiting today. Once he came very close to vomiting. It was in high school in a social studies class. He sat next to a girl whose eyes bulged out of their sockets. He assumed she had some kind of condition, but her eyes were robin's egg blue, and the overall effect was not unattractive. When the teacher told the class that President Harding had had VD, the girl wanted to know what VD was and she almost seemed to believe the teacher's smiling explanation that the initial stood for Valentine's Day. But that day he could stand the onrushing wave of nausea no longer, and involuntarily he moaned, Oh, I'm gonna throw up. The girl with the bulging eyes became agitated and jumped up from her seat. They sat in the middle two rows and their seats were attached, and she cried out to the class, He's sick! He's sick! Three years later, when he was able to use public transportation again, he saw the girl on a bus. Evidently, she had married, or she carried a baby in her arms. How can people live like that? On the back of the photograph, she had written in a small, neat handwriting, Well, we went through a lot together, but I think we finally understand each other. I know I'll always remember you and what we went through together. I hope you will, too, and whenever you look at this picture, you'll remember only the good times. Where does it hurt? He called her, crying hysterically, great heaving sobs. She told him she could not make out the words and that he should calm down and try to tell her exactly what had happened. He took deep breaths and finally related the story of the unprotected eggs and the muttered obscenities, and the hollering, and the lost appetite, and the threats, and the mess, and the scorned tears, and the cry, but I love you going unheard. He knew he was powerless, he said. When he finished the story, she told him, you need to know someone cares. He agreed, but said he needed to know more. He needed to know he was not crazy. She told him there must be a reason why he was so affected, and he, being rational, before she could say it, said, the telephone is not the best place to discuss these things. I'll see you at the usual time on Tuesday. And he hung up the receiver, looked in the mirror, watched himself sob, his face and eyes red and swollen, his stomach rebelling, 
and he thought, well, at least I've cleaned out my sinuses. How does it feel to be alone? He was almost surprised that he had survived the night. It had hardly bothered him at all, having only himself for company. He drank jasmine tea and dipped into Proust. And after a while, he looked up from his book and the digital clock read 1147. So he put on the flannel bathrobe and went to the kitchen and watched the poor fools in Times Square and the older, more affluent fools dancing to Guy Lombardo's gray hotel music. To him, it was absurd, cheering a new year, applauding the passage of time. One might just as well celebrate the movement of a glacier. He settled down to sleep at about 1 a.m., only to awaken two hours later when the telephone rang. No one spoke, so he just said, Happy New Year, and he hung up the receiver. Within five minutes, he was asleep again. What should a person do? On the way to her house, he felt nauseated. When he realized that the nausea was anger, he found himself becoming furious. He walked in and immediately proceeded to tell her how damn sick he was of her controlling his life, of his jumping at her every command. He had fantasies of torturing her, he said, using the toilet seat. She was silent. Then she asked, Why? Damn you, he said. I'm angry because you're so fucking important to me. He gave her a very hard time, waiting for her to become angry, waiting for her to become hurt. But he knew he was afraid to hurt her, because he had made her a goddess, and if she cried because of him, his image of her would be shattered. Then there would be no order in the galaxy. Afterwards, he felt ashamed. How does it feel to be a man? For a long time he wanted a black eye. The thought of physical violence excited him only when it would result in his getting a black eye. He kept hoping to get into a fight, a fight in which a stronger opponent would punch him squarely and surely in the eye. Although he took to hanging out in tough neighborhoods, and though he sometimes shoved people in the street, he never did meet anyone who would fight with him, and he was sorely disappointed. He had to resort to artificial black eyes, those made from carbon paper or mascara or India ink. Eventually, he became close enough to another person to ask for a black eye, but almost as soon as he got the words out, the desire had disappeared. A black eye was no longer necessary. What should a person do? He was taught that one way to relieve tension was to have a knockdown, drag out argument at home so that he could appear calm in public, in society. So it was natural, perhaps, that when he first began to see her, he would pick a quarrel before he went out. Yet when he had the presence of mind to ask another if something was bothering them, he got a look of almost pitying puzzlement. Why, they wondered, would he bring up feelings when someone's cufflinks were missing? He remembered his father telling the first psychiatrist that the best thing to do sometimes was to repress a thing that upset you. It was a not untypical reaction from an American male with ulcers. What is a dream? Coming over the bridge in the evening, he saw the moon directly between two cables. It was a mustard-colored moon, partially covered by low-hanging gray-blue clouds. What should a person do? He was told, the world, after all, is a large place, and he grudgingly admitted that perhaps he wanted to know her intimately, that he wanted to know all facets of her. 
He was told that he was interested in knowing people and experiencing them in many ways. Why then, she asked, did he limit himself to one person, and at that, a person who would not be completely his? He protested, Do you mean that it's not really love? And she said that it was not necessary to assume she was taking away the anchors from his life. She was merely raising questions. Bitterly, he said, Well, excuse me. I thought that I was enjoying myself on Saturday. Now tell me I was mistaken. She did not respond to his challenge, but said instead, You want to be a baby, neither a man nor a woman. You have a fear of losing control during orgasm. You are scared of losing some part of you, a vital creative essence, along with the loss of semen. Even though others acknowledge your manhood, even though it comes from the person from whom you want it most, this does not satisfy you, for it does not come from within. He said that it scared him to even think about it. She smiled. That's a different problem she said. When do people become happy? Someone told him, you may think that you're unstable and fragile and insecure, but I'll tell you, kid, when it comes to other people, you're a brick. He was a brick. How does it feel to be with someone? He was desperate. Finally, he said into the receiver, it's just that you get into the habit of loving. But is that love? she asked, and before he could respond, she excused herself from the telephone. It was very characteristic of her. She said that her brother had been calling her. Years later at parties, she would tell people that they had been together for two years. He would laugh and correct her and say, it was only a year, 11 months, two weeks, and three days. And she would laugh and look at him and take his hand, an old friend's hand. Why do people have to die? He was reading the sports section of the newspaper, a story about a football game. The quarterback had to leave the game at halftime. He received a telephone call saying that his father had died. The team was defeated, 21-16. to 16. The coach of the team was quoted in speaking of the quarterback. His loss was greater than ours. He put down the newspaper, wondering what to do next. What should a person do? He was called in as a consultant on a very difficult, very similar case. A 10-year-old boy who was afraid to go to a basketball game in Madison Square Garden. The boy was afraid he would get sick there. The father asked him for advice. He told the father, force him to go. Otherwise, it will only become worse in the future. He will avoid going places until finally he won't go out at all. He was sure of his diagnosis. When he went in, he found the boy in a familiar state pacing, crying, over-breathing. I'm having a nervous breakdown, the ten-year-old said. He told the boy that one must do the things that were frightening. The boy still cried, and the father slapped the boy, saying, Listen to this man. He's the voice of experience. He told the boy that he really wanted to go out, that he loved basketball. He said it would be hell and then asked, Who ever said it was going to be easy? After half an hour of talking, he convinced the boy to go. The father was very grateful. He called the next day to say that all had gone well, that they were only sorry that the home team had lost. It was a satisfaction he needed, the confirmation of what he had just begun to suspect, that he was a success.
What is a dream? He was half asleep when the telephone rang. Are you awake? the caller asked. No, I'm a funeral, he said, smiling dreamily. And then there were widowers, widowers flying everywhere. You're listening to Fiction Transmission, a project of Fiction Collective 2. FC2 is a nonprofit author run publisher of innovative fiction, a literary alternative since 1974. Every week we bring you a story and a conversation. You just heard Au Milieu Antérieur by Richard Grayson from the anthology Statements 2, published by FC2 in 1977. Next, Richard is joined by writer, teacher, and FC2 board member Sarah Blackman for a conversation across the cosmic distance of isolation. So you wrote this, do you know around when this was written for you, like where you were in your life? Or Yes, I, I, w- I was in the MFA program at Brooklyn College where Jonathan Baumbach uh, and Peter Spielberg, who were the co-directors of the Fiction Collective at that time, were the main fiction professors. And I was in my second year. They It, it was uh, pretty easy to get into because it was the first year of an MFA program. And I think they took basically everybody who applied. Um, and I think I wrote this in the fall of 1975. Mm -hmm. So when I see this story now, I mean, I have to be honest, it's kind of like torturous in a way to listen to it or to read it because it's 45 plus years later. And while I can see the story is very autobiographical and it deals with things going on in my life and you you are still the same person, you know, I'm almost 70. And, you know, if you meet, people later on, you see, oh, they've changed a lot, like in 50 years, but sort of still the same. But I don't remember writing it. The way I would write stories in those days was I had a notebook and I just fill it up with scribblings. And then I'd write down my dreams and I'd write down thoughts and things I read. And it was like a random collection of things. And then I would just sit down and say, I'm going to make a story out of this. Go through this. No, don't take that. When I was, I I wanted to be a writer. So, you know, I'm in an MFA program. And I said, well, I should write a story a week. And I was like, you could say that's disciplined, but I was like very undisciplined. And I would just like write a story. (laughs) I, I did not rewrite. I would sit on the floor. I had a very tiny room and, Mm -hmm. um, I sat at the typewriter and wrote a a first draft. My first draft was my last draft. And I said, well, if it's no good, I'll write a better. I would never rewrite. Mm -hmm. I would just like recirculate and say if I could get a different story. So I basically didn't know what I was doing, which was great. Yes. I was going to say, I think that's the best way to write is to not know what you're doing and then just do the thing that happens. See what it is later. Yeah, I mean, I, I, what's kind of sad is, is like after years, 
and you become a published writer, um, at least for me, I, I sort of lost that feeling, mm-hmm. uh, especially when you start to have books and you get reviews and criticism from mm-hmm. not just your classmates or a teacher, but, you know, it's in a newspaper or a magazine and you say, oh, and so I was only like 24 years old and I was very, I would say, immature. I was still living with my parents. I was, um, you know, I, I, I think I was teaching, I was teaching for like the second time at a, at a different college from the one I was going to. And um, I was at a weird point in my life. I think like probably 23, 24, you're always at a weird point. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I think you're always at a weird point period in your life, no matter that what. May be. <laughs> that may be. That's possibly true. Um, yeah. I had been in therapy. Um, you can tell through the story. I mean, that it's true. You know, this was as a teenager, like in the mid 60s, um, starting out. Uh, I had panic disorder. That's what mm-hmm. you would call it today. They didn't they didn't have that thing then. But I would have these terrible panic attacks, which I called anxiety attacks. And I had I had a metaphobia, still do a fear of vomiting, which mm-hmm. uh, people like me hardly ever vomit. Like I have not vomited. If I told you how many decades I have not vomited, uh, people who have a fear of it just don't. Um, and some of the, the, the sexuality things, mm-hmm. other things dealing with masculinity and relationships. I had broken up with a girlfriend at the time and I had to stop therapy. I was started therapy when I was 15 and my father said, I don't have any more money. It was like the recession of 74, 75. I started to work it out in my fiction, I think. Yeah. Well, and that's actually something I was going to bring up because I did, I poked around on your website. I was like, oh, what's going on over here? And so I did read a little bit about um, what you were talking about was kind of more severe agoraphobia at that point in time in your life. And and again, I feel like that is maybe reflected a little bit in the structure of the story, which is all about interiors um, and, and almost like physically the blank space that's left in between them that we can't enter. So I, I wonder if part of that too is um, kind of writing the conditions of, of your own sort of psychology at the time or mirroring them, whether that was intentional or not. And, and part of what you were saying about your writing process of just putting things in journals and then later going through and being like, is this a story? Um, that's very familiar to me because that's that's kind of my own process too, where I'm like, oh, I did a drawing of somebody whose head is an owl's head. Is that a story? Maybe it is. Um, and kind of reproducing it that way. But I feel like that's kind of this wide open door to the subconscious when you write from journals like that. Um, and I, I do feel like a lot of that maybe is reflected in this story, which is about the subconscious, which is about dreaming and our access to dreams, um, but also about meticulously small spaces um, that we kind of inhabit more fully than they can contain us. So I do like that idea that you're kind of writing from dreams and writing from these inner workings of, of um, what might come out in therapy, but instead comes out as art, which I guess, of course, leads us to that question of like, what is a story? I, um, I, I ask that I teach at the high school level. So I teach ninth through 12th grade. Um, and they're students who have a specific interest in creative writing and they come to my class just to, to learn it. And so at the beginning of every section, I'm like, well, let's see what we think. What is a story? And just this year, I said, what is a story? Ready to impart upon them all my wisdom. And one of them raised their hand and said, nobody knows. And I was like, oh, well, that's actually, yes, that's, that's. You, the ruined, the, you ruined the whole <laughs> lesson. <laughs> That's a much better answer than all the things I was going to say. So 
that's my new answer. What is a story nobody knows? You know, stories change. And, and all the people, the people I read that sort of blew my mind when I was a teenager, late teens, in college, um, uh, even people like I should be embarrassed to talk about, like Richard Brown again. It was the 60s, man, you know, in the, the early 70s. And, and Ron, Ron Sukunik, Sukunik, I could never know how, how to pronounce his name, which is probably why he didn't, didn't talk to me that much. Um, <laughs> but yeah, his books and Steve Katz, Raymond Fetterman, where he mm-hmm. take it. I was working for the collective when he did take it or leave it. And I don't know if you've ever seen that book, but it's the typography and the pages. It's unpaginated. And mm-hmm. we were having such trouble with the printers because there were no page numbers. And to get everything <laughs> right, they were going crazy. I, I realized I could publish in little magazines. And that's what I called them, little magazines. And they had them at the Gotham Book Mart in the 8th Street Bookstore. And I would buy these magazines and go to readings and, and see all these people doing poetry, which I didn't really write because I didn't know how, where you put the break for the line. That's why I, I think... Nobody knows. Nobody knows. <laughs> I know. um, it, it was just like, oh, I can do basically anything I want. Mm-hmm. And if you want to draw pictures, I mean, <laughs> in some of our undergraduate writing courses, students would just like write on construction paper with drawings as if they were like, third graders and the teacher would say, oh, that's kind of amazing. Cool. So. Awesome. I would like to do that too. Maybe we can reinstitute that as a, a possible freedom here in 2020. We'll just recycle some of our old, old freedoms, and bring them back again. Well, if you teach little kids, that's things that they do, right? Yeah. And, and, and high, I, I, high school kids, I haven't had that much experience, but I've had experience teaching like second graders, third graders, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, they're great. They are. They are. I mean, that's, that is like the wide open door to the subconscious. They don't, they have not yet developed that kind of socially reinforced notion that there's a difference between my interior world and our exterior world. Um, so they just let it all be the same thing, which is actually something else that, that kind of is a, is a theme in, in your story as well as that um, kind of rigidly enforced distance between the inside self and the, and the, presentable or the more or less presentable outside self. Yeah. Um, which is there, interesting. There's the part where um, like the nine-year-old boy calls the woman an adulteress. Yes. And that actually happened. I mean, that's what actually happened on the beach at San Juan. And I, I put that in because I, I wasn't, ex- I had heard what the word adulteress, but I didn't, I knew it didn't quite mean a female adult. Mm-hmm. That was a, like an excuse I could use because I'm like nine years, but I didn't know what it meant and the way this woman reacted. Now, looking back, I think, how do you call a woman an adulteress? It's a pretty weird term in 2021, but, uh, but that also has something to do with becoming an adult, not a child. Mm-hmm. And testing that boundary and, and where, where language draws boundaries too, between our ability to plead kind of innocence slash ignorance and our necessity of understanding what the words mean, which I I actually think is a very false um, 
impression that children have of adults that they know how to use language. Like one of the hallmarks of adulthood for children is that they have all these words and they know what they mean and they can say them. And sometimes I don't know what they mean, but I feel like most adults and certainly myself, we don't know what the heck we're saying. We're just spouting language and letting it kind of take the place of meaning sometimes, which I feel like is, is also one of the things that experimental fiction does is pays attention to that divide between saying and meaning and maybe exploits that divide. Yeah, that's a, that's a very articulate way of saying it. Um, I, I <laughs> Remember, I don't know what I mean, so it's fine. <laughs> but, but yeah, you know, it was like a lot of times people would, where I would send things out and they would say something like, this is just more writing about writing. Mm-hmm. And um, I like writing about writing. To me, every writing was about writing. Um, but actually, that kind of dovetails into something I wanted to talk to you about, too, um, from your website that you had talked about giving a lecture called Can Publishing and Literature Coexist, which I thought was a super provocative and interesting title and a really good question right up there with what is a story. And then also the last line of your short story, the greatest short story that absolutely ever was. Um, sort of in there, you were talking about the, the ending of that story and the idea that there's an always limited, I'm quoting from your website now, there's an always limited public taste for the metafictional experiment, which is related to the public's resistance to fiction that they can't understand. I wonder if you would just um, talk, talk a little bit about this idea of publishing in literature. Is that an oppositional relationship? Um, is it a symbiotic relationship? I mean, as somebody who's done kind of both sides of this, the writing and the publishing, how do you think that relationship works? Uh, can Literature and Publishing Coexist was actually the title of a conference okay. that I was the coordinator of at Brooklyn College. And we had, you know, we had people like Kurt Vonnegut and um, basically all the, the, the people in the MFA program, the professors, John Ashbery and, and others, their friends came and uh, people in the publishing industry. There was a change. I think it's hard to know, but definitely when I talked earlier about the 60s and, and books like Ron Sukunik's book or Steve Katz's original books, one reason they started the Fiction Collective, Jonathan Baumbach too, these people had been published by Random House, Knopf, um, Farrar Strauss, the main you know, commercial, New York's Manhattan commercial publishers in mid to late 1960. And then the 70s come along Partly it's a matter of economics. Um, you could, there are reasons for it. And the reasons actually have nothing to do with literature or publishing. Um, I'm a lawyer and I, 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 a Supreme Court nerd. And there's a case called Thor Power Tool. Are you familiar with that case? I'm not, I'm not. Thor Power Tool versus Commissioner of Internal Revenue. And the Supreme Court unanimously says, that you can't write down your old inventory. It didn't affect really anything except book publishing because book publishers used to be able to keep the unsold books in a warehouse. And it was like they could take great, like write it down on their profit loss sheet. And so it was, it was fine if the books didn't sell. Another political decision was the Great Society under Lyndon Johnson and, and mm-hmm. Richard Nixon. It continued it. 
there was so much money for library funding that any book could sell like 10,000 copies because mm-hmm. the libraries had money to buy so many books. Like if a book was reviewed in Library Journal or Publishers Weekly, they, re- they just would buy every book. Mm-hmm. So publishers knew that they could at least like not lose too much money or, or break even. Um, fiction the public can understand. Right. So there was less risk. Somebody, there was less risk. Yeah. And as things under, and there was a lot of money for the arts, you know, people were getting uh, fellowships from the federal government, lots of money, uh, state arts councils. I got like four state arts councils grant from two different states. And um, it was just financially as a lot of things, it was easier in the 60s. And then as the mid 70s wore on, and that's the time FC2's precursor fiction collective was created, Mm -hmm. it began to be harder and harder to publish like things that the public was resistant to. Um, Things that were a little difficult. And so uh, that's part of the reason that you start to see more small presses uh, more uh, little magazines. There was also money for them from, mm-hmm. uh, especially in the Nixon administration and, and the Ford. And then, and then when Reagan came in 1980, everything was God. I, that was that. <laughs> you know, so that, yeah. that's how I think I could get a commercial publisher for my first book mm-hmm. of short stories. It really didn't make sense. The, the Thor power tool decision came down after they accepted my book. But before uh, it was published and like within like six months, they said, oh, we've got to get rid of all. We've got to like turn your turn your books in the Long Island warehouse into like uh, paper mache or whatever. <laughs> you know. Um, and uh, I bought I bought a. They said, do you want any? Uh, <laughs> and I said, well, what would you charge? They said 10 cents a copy. I said, mm-hmm. How about five cents? And I remember the treasurer said, you drive a hard bargain, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) So I ended up with all these books and I just gave them away. Yeah. How long did you have them? Were they something that sort of slowly became like part of furniture in the apartment or did you get get them out into the world? Well, I was living in Florida. My parents were were uh, had clothing businesses Mm -hmm. uh, so that you um, they had a like mini warehouse. So I put it in the mini warehouse. Mm. The problem was I didn't realize that if you did that in unair condition, the book covers, the covers stuck together. Mm-hmm. So I had to get rid of all of them. Some of them got a little mildewed too. But yes, yeah, so I had a lot of books. But even as late as the mid 80s, I, I had a small press publish me and they published, I, I was publishing hardcover because mm-hmm. libraries would still buy them. And they knew they could, if they got a review in Library Journal that was halfway decent, you could sell out yeah. a thousand copies. Yeah. Well, that, and that actually is one of the, the things that um, I like so much about FC2's you know, Fiction Collective 2, which sprang from the, the Fiction Collective 1's sort of corporeal form. Um, I like it so much because it is author-driven in terms of our intake. Like who we publish is decided by the authorial body instead of by kind of a, um, 
a bottom line, an accounting line that says, how much can we make off these? It's more like, what is it risking? What is the artistry of it? Um, so I've always thought that that was kind of a, I don't know, a, a policy that embraces both risk and art and the, the way that art has to take risks in order to work, but also something that, that ends up being much more egalitarian than a lot of the sort of um, publishing houses. Something that um, I feel like that with all art, we should all be dancers and singers and um, painters and you know, musicians. I mentioned earlier that I have a, a literal brass band playing in the backyard that's made up of my partner and a whole bunch of our friends who are um, jewelry makers, an ex-engineer with NASA, um, music teacher at a school, uh, an insurance adjuster, uh, my partner who teaches English. So, you know, I mean, I'm just like, play your tuba in the backyard and, and see what happens. So um, I feel like the small press route of publishing is much more akin to those ideals of saying that if you are a writer, it's likely you're also something else. You're a lawyer, you're a high school teacher, you're a whatever else you are. Um, but that's, that doesn't mean that you don't have a thing to say to the world that can't be said by anybody else. Like you still have that unique and individual voice. So uh, another thing though, that I, I was kind of interested in just listening to you talk about kind of early days of uh, FC2 and, and publishing and how it's changed. It sort of sparked in my mind. I remember in 2008 when the economy collapsed, um, as we may all recall, I was at AWP in wherever it was, maybe Denver. Um, and I remember that Everybody was hurting. Small presses it's all the same. It's all the same. It is. They all have the same carpet. So, um, and you know, everyone was kind of financially in woe and um, having trouble affording the tables to present your kind of product and your um, your stuff at. And there was this kind of like indie takeover of some of the tables. I think it was like Octopus. It was like Matthias Fellino with Octopus Books and um, maybe Civil Coping Mechanism and. Uh, Black Ocean, Wave Press. I can't remember who all was in it, but they they called it Area X and they just covered all the tables with brown paper and they refused to advertise themselves. And they started putting out um, kind of small products and a lot of them were handmade. Um, so handmade paper, like hand-bound ladder stitching and were selling for discount prices and then also kind of refusing to be an independent or an individualized thing and becoming much more like a collective of small publishers. Um, and I just thought that was such a, interesting direction for publishing to go into as a response to an economic downturn to say that instead of trying to mass produce my product more cheaply, right? So that I can sell it more cheaply and still make a, make a profit. They said, instead, I'm going to produce far fewer and they're going to be like beautifully made objects. And they're going, the object will be part of the art that you're buying, not just the content of the language that the author's done, but also the object that's been made by the bookmaker. The New York book fairs, that I went to were all like that. I mean, that was like basically everybody there was really you people doing handmade things mm -hmm. and you would go in and that I think that started just about the same time as the fiction collective in 1975. When I came on as a, as a you know, just I was still a graduate student as a volunteer, um, they didn't really have a system for dealing with manuscripts. And so I sort of developed the, the idea was that of the author members, they had to get four yes votes and we mm -hmm. had to get, and you would do a maximum of seven votes and I would send the manuscripts out to people and, and record them. And, oh, this one has two yeses and two no's. And um, I, I actually could sort of like sway things because 
if, if it was a manuscript that I thought like, I, I know not to send it to this person because mm-hmm. he says no to everything. He just uh, doesn't like he won anything um, except maybe his sister published. Um, <laughs> I would, uh, we, we did that and, and it was interesting to deal with authors and basically whenever we would have like a, a publication party, all of them would come up to me and say, stop sending us so many manuscripts. So eventually <laughs> like me and maybe a, another student, we would just like eliminate some. I was yeah. thinking just earlier today about our first novel contest, which was in 1977, I think. And, you know, it was in the writer and writer's digest, which were magazines that were sold like on every newsstand. And it was George Braziller, the publisher in, in Manhattan of like art books was our distributor. And it was sent to his office. And, uh, my friend and I go there one day and it's just wall to wall manuscripts. And our job is to get like for the final judges who are Russell Banks. And I can't remember the other two just winnow it down like mm-hmm. 700 manuscripts to about like 75 or right. 50. <laughs> yes, everyone should be a writer, but you don't want to read all their novels. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, when you start to read, sometimes you could tell by the by the first sentence, like, yeah. you know, the little town of so and so lane in the valley. And you you thought that's like not a good start. Yeah. And sometimes even the, the cover letter will explain that uh, I actually got I, I used a lot of the material that I got from those. Um. Joanna, it's the head of FC2, the chair right now, Joanna Rocco, often calls FC2 a, uh, a loose confederation of anarchists. And I, I, I love that description. And I think even within loose confederations of anarchists, we you also have to do what? I don't know. It's not gatekeeping. It's more like, um, I don't, deciding when to open the door. Because I am now in that position of, of Manuscript Central that you were talking about a second ago. I'm, I'm the person who brings all the manuscripts in and then shifts them out again. Um, and I, I always struggle with how to think about that position. Like, is it gatekeeping? Is it building selective platforms? Why can't we build bigger platforms and fit everybody on them? I never quite know. Um, I mean, I know what my job is, but I never quite know what the philosophy behind my job is in terms of helping distribute and then select. Um, which manuscripts we publish, and then even more difficultly, which ones we don't. So as somebody who's been a publisher, how did you kind of mitigate that? Or or how did you think about that idea of of what do we take? What were you looking for? You know, (laughs) I I didn't make any decisions. Mm -hmm. So um, I was was removed from that. But I'm thinking back to the first novel contest. I mean, we picked Andre, uh, Andre with two E's, uh, a woman. Uh, uh, Connor's Amateur People, which mm-hmm. was a pretty, you know, it's it's when we actually found out who she was and her biography said she spends her time wandering around her room. We were on, they, I remember uh, the coordinator uh, was a little taken aback, but but actually Andre was was pretty well known in Mendocino County in the hippie movement mm-hmm. of the time. And her, I think her book, reflects it has certain things that are hard to figure out what's going on sometimes 
Um, is this person a real person? Is it not? But he, from the vantage point of, you know, 40 years later, it's a worthwhile book. Mm-hmm. Richard, it was so nice to get a chance to talk oh. to you and, and also get a chance to, to read some of your work, which um, I will be looking up because I'm really interested in, your, in what you were doing. Um, uh, putting online my diaries, um, which are probably very boring. Uh, they're not probably, they're definitely very boring, but at least they're mine and no one can say like, oh, uh, that's, you know, that's no good. So the, the, it, it's real. I suspect that true value is like things from, from what I hear from readers, it's, it has nothing to do with like the literary quality. Oh, you're writing. My father never told me that he was so active in the Black Panthers. He would never talk about it. And you wrote about him. And now I know what he did in college. So, um, yeah, uh, they're on Thought Catalog and, and uh, mostly. Um, it's like two and a half million words. That's plenty. And, and that's all um, I've been doing. I'm, I'm active in, in other things like politics and stuff. Like I said, I'm a little out of things, but I do keep, I do keep track. I have like, um, I, and I'm old, and I that that's a, that's a, now that's my excuse for everything. I'm an old man. So Sarah, what are you working on these days? I just finished um, a collection of short stories that are actually all ekphrastic fictions, um, which I started when my I don't know what ekphrastic means. Like uh, based on paintings. Based on paintings, um, and I st- I started it when my my oldest child is nine now when she was born because I was so exhausted and I felt like all the um, all the energy that I was using to like keep her physically alive was the energy I would otherwise have been using to write and I didn't have any left over so I was like well I'm just gonna let someone else start the story and then I'll just like describe a painting for a while and see if it leads me into the story so I would like look at a I don't know a Matisse or a um, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the other, I'm agreed or something like that and, and start with description and then see where it led me. So I worked on that for like 10 years and now I think I'm, I'm done and I'm, I'm going to start poking around and see if it can come out into the world anywhere. So I'm doing that. And I always have multiple, multiple things at once. I'm working on another project that's, um, very short fictions based on, uh, environmental catastrophes. So I'm, I'm doing a lot of like Wikipedia research and then going down really, really depressing um, eco-catastrophe rabbit holes. So that's that's like anti-therapy. I'm doing anti-therapy, basically. Well, that sounds good. And thank you for teaching me the word of frastic. Thanks to Richard Grayson and Sarah Blackman for joining us this week. Fiction Transmission is made by FC2 with generous support from the Jarvis and Constance Doctorow Family Foundation. This episode was produced by Brian Kahn, engineered by Joelle Thibodeau, and read by me, Madeline Lambert. You can find FC2 online at fc2.org, on Twitter at FCTWO, and on Instagram at Fiction Collective 2. Please join us next week for another story and a new conversation.